Amen. You can be seated. Good morning. My name is Ben, one of the pastors here at Hope Church. And if you have a copy of the scriptures, you can turn or tap your way to Acts chapter 16. Acts, a book in the New Testament, right after the four gospels that tells sort of the story of the early church. And we're diving into it today because I want to set the background for some stuff we're going to talk about in the book of Philippians over the next several weeks. And while those are the places we will be looking, the actual subjects we're going to be covering, uh, I think they don't just appeal to Christians with a little bit of a historical interest. They appeal to the Christian today who has to answer the question, how do I become joyful? Or how do I access the joy that God has promised to those that are His? And I want to understand it from the Scripture. The Scripture is our authority here at Hope Church. We don't have the authority of people or any kind of a structure within the church. Our authority comes from the Bible. We believe it's God's Word. And so if you have a copy of the Scripture, I really would encourage you to turn or tap your way to Acts 16 so you can read it with us. If you don't have a copy, don't panic. We'll have those words on the screen, but we'd love to give you a Bible on the way out uh, in a modern English translation so that you can be studying for yourself and trying to understand what God says to us. Now, here's what's crazy about the book of Philippians. In the book of Philippians, you've got a guy, Paul, writing a letter to a church that he helped to start in Philippi about joy. He's telling them, he's encouraging them, commanding them, rejoice. He's telling them to joy, have joy, feel joy, be joyful. What's upside down about it is that he is writing from a prison to this church. There's a way that you could see that that would say, be joyful that you're not in prison. And we get that. But Philippians is not a scared straight episode. Have you ever seen that kind of thing where they take troubled teens and they have a prisoner come in and like fresh meat, you know, and they get in their face and they punch the locker behind them and they get really intense and those teens realize, I don't want to go to prison. No. Paul is not saying, be joyful that you're not in jail. And he's not saying to be joyful for suffering, as though there was some sort of a twisted sense of pleasure that we had that said suffering is pleasurable. Well, no, no, we don't say that either. He's describing a kind of joy that exists and maybe even burns more brightly in suffering. A kind of joy that's not affected by suffering. A kind of joy that only comes through a Christian understanding of how God has come to address our suffering. He is telling them to feel joy, to rejoice like He does. With a joy that doesn't Go away. Now, that is, is intense, and it's something that's worth having if we can understand it well. That's what we're going to attempt to do in this series. Now, my parents recently took my kids, so their grandkids, to a movie about rescue dogs. It was like a documentary kind of a movie in a like, kids' museum sort of a thing. 
and they'd taken little girls and little boys to a movie about rescue dogs. So my little girls are very excited to see puppies, and the little boys are very excited to see, like, rescue dogs, like, it's uh, Paw Patrol, and, like, real life, it's real, you know, everybody's happy, it's just home run for the grandparents. But they get there, and they start going through this movie, and the movie is showing how rescue dogs are able to, like, sniff people out who are stuck in rubble, even people who... Uh, you know, we're stuck in the rubble after the Twin Towers fell, the attacks on September 11th. So the children are getting old enough now where that kind of stuff doesn't just fly over their head. They start asking questions about specifically what was being said. And they have to create, and they come home and we talk to the kids, and we have to create for our children a new category that didn't exist before, that they do live in a world where people might try to kill you, try to attack you, not because you did something, but because you are something. They live in a world with a lot of, of, of hate and a lot of suffering, a lot of really dark stuff. Obviously, we had yesterday where we thought about that. And I, I'm imagining, I'm, I'm hoping that you tried to take an understanding of suffering from, from what we remember about September 11th yesterday and place it within a Christian context. So, so that is not something that you just sort of see and understand and the, that we experience together culturally, but we, we don't bring into church. We don't try to ask God about. It is something that we need to bring into church and ask God about. We do want to understand what resources God has for us to understand that kind of suffering. A guy named Tim Keller, we really like. He's a preacher, a church planner in New York City at the time. He had a very large church in New York City, and he had to preach the Sunday after 9-11. Well, what did he say? The gospel has resources for those who mourn. And he wrote a book on suffering. I think it's just called Suffering by Tim Keller. And on page one, he quotes from Shakespeare. He says, each new mourn, new widows howl, new orphans cry, new sorrows strike heaven on the face. So if suffering is real and it's real like that, how do Christians sing? That's what I want to understand. I want to understand it from Scripture. I want to understand how Jesus made a way for that. Not how we can trick ourselves into some sort of psychological happiness or blindness, but really, really, what does God teach us in how we are to understand and rejoice through suffering? So to understand it, we're going to go to the book of Acts. And in the book of Acts, we see the story of how God started this church through Paul and Silas and Timothy in this place called Philippi, it's a historical place. You can actually go to the World Heritage Site. It's sort of like left of Thessalonica, Thessaloniki or whatever. You go to Greece if you want to actually go there. It's a real place. And in this place, God called Paul to go and, and do ministry in Macedonia, sort of that region. And in that region, the, the sort of primary city at the time was a place called 
Philippi. That's where they showed up, and that's where they began to speak. And the reason that they did, they were actually trying to go to Asia, but in a vision, God, he not only stopped them from going to Asia, he showed them a man in Macedonia calling out to Paul saying, come, help us. So God directed vision. He's definitely supposed to go to Philippi. Getting there, he begins to speak. He begins to preach. He finds this place where people would go as some sort of a a sacred place or a prayer place there around Philippi. And he would go and he would preach the gospel to the people that were there. And this one lady in particular, a lady named Lydia, was a wealthy, influential woman in the community. And she came to Christ. Her whole family came to Christ. And they they hosted Paul. They said, all right, you, you don't have to camp or whatever you were doing. Come stay at our place. They had a home base. People started coming to know the Lord that they were preaching. They came to agree with Paul's preaching. Big things were starting to happen. So much so that there's this weird sort of story about this slave girl who was actually possessed by a demon. And she would follow them around, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. Now, you imagine a demon-possessed girl. You probably think of like a Linda Blair-type character kind of running around with her head spinning and vomiting everywhere. You don't expect somebody who walks around like a herald proclaiming to all the people, these are the people who speak the words of the living God. Sounds like free advertising. I mean, it sounds like something that Paul would have to pay for. Now he doesn't. This girl that can just go around and proclaim this. But she doesn't stop proclaiming it, and unfortunately, it gets annoying. It says in verse 18 of Acts 16, she kept doing it for many days. It wasn't like a day. That's a long time if it was a day, but it was many days. And Paul, become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. That is really funny. It's very funny that an apostle of God cast out a demon because he was just really irritated that she would not stop yelling everywhere they went. And you can imagine that she would, that she would yell it, and he'd be like, thank you, yeah, okay, now, so, and then he, she would yell it again, okay, thank you, all right, but, and then she'd just keep yelling it again and again, so, and the Holy Spirit attended that command, and this lady no longer had this demon anymore. So you go even further, you see that wonderful things are happening. God's building something big. The Holy Spirit is accompanying the preaching of the Word, and there's these big signs of power. And then this wild sort of left turn comes out. Because that girl was actually able to tell the future, she was like a fortune teller. She had made the people who owned her a lot of money. And when Paul cast out the demons, she no longer could tell uh, fortunes for people. So they now lost that money, becoming very angry because they lost that source of income. They actually imprisoned Paul and Silas. They drag them before the magistrates, it says in verse 20. And when they brought them before the magistrates, they said, These men are Jews, and they're disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. Not really why they were upset, but maybe something that the magistrate could get them for. And then the crowd joins in in attacking them and the magistrates tear the garments off of Paul and Silas and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in stocks. 
wasn't Paul called to go to Macedonia? Like, weren't people getting saved? Weren't mighty signs of power accompanying the preaching? Then how, why why would God allow this to be stripped, to be shamed, to be beaten with rods, and then cast into prison? They feel, I would imagine, I would feel abandoned. How could you not? If he loved me, would this be where I would be? Let me ask you the question because I want you to start applying what's happening. Again, it's not a history lesson. The point is for God to speak his gospel to you. So I want you to, in this moment, ask yourself very seriously if you have felt or do feel abandoned by God. Does your life feel as though God has either abandoned you or is actively against you. See, I think as humans, we do feel that way towards God. We do accuse God. There's a great deal of either bitterness, feeling abandoned by God, or even anger towards God. It's easy just to say He doesn't exist. But if we say he doesn't exist, then who do we feel abandoned by? Who do we feel angry with? There's a really useful website called ChristianityExplored.org. You go there, you can explore Christianity. They wrote the material that we're going to be going through in that class called... uh, well, it's called New to Christianity, but it's about exploring Christianity. I want you to know about this website, because if you ever go there, you can click on tough questions, and it's got all these answers to tough questions, the kinds of things that our society throws out against Christianity, saying it can't be true because, and then you can click, and you can read this, the sort of quick response that we would give with further reading if you want to go deeper. And you can do it as a video if that's your thing, or you can read the little transcripts. It's very helpful. It's also very British. I don't know why they are all British contributors, but it is. So if you're too American for the red coats, I get it. But the content is biblical and helpful. And if you ask about suffering on that little thing, it brings up the point that whether God, whatever God has to say about suffering, the the way in which we feel about God in suffering is a pretty powerful argument for the existence of God. It says, if you've ever found yourself asking why, to whom are you addressing the question? You see, if God doesn't exist, is there really anyone to ask in an ultimate sense? Surely, this is just the way the world is. Accidents happen, molecules make mistakes, leading to diseases, biology drives human behavior. The problem with this view is that it doesn't really help us make sense of the grittiness of life. We get angry at suffering. But where does that anger come from if this is just the way the world is? It's a helpful question. And the Christian response is not just to say, deal with it. It's not just to go down some sort of a stoic road and understand that suffering's real and so, you know, don't get too attached the Christian response goes deeper. The Christian response in suffering is 
joy. It says in 16.25 about midnight, Paul and Silas with open wounds, feet in stocks in a prison, were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. Now, I am a terrible singer. I'm just not very good at it. I wish I was. Don't have the ear. But I'll sing regularly and loudly just out of the joy that I feel about some of the stuff that God's done in our lives. My kids don't love it. You know, I'll sing and they'll say, Dad, uh, can we listen to like the hope version of that? Like, can we go on Spotify and listen to like the pro? You can sing along, but can we hear the professional singers? And you get it. It's so great when you hear these people sing, and they sing so beautifully, so powerfully. They embody the emotion that you're wanting to sing with. I don't want to just sing the songs. I want to sing the songs the way they sing them, with all of the, you know, not just, you're going to hear my praises roar. Yeah, amen. But then the next time she sings it, you're going to hear my praises roar, you know, and you feel it with her. That's how I want to sing it. I hope that's how you want to sing it because it's not just truth. Rhythm and melody combine with the words in order to instruct your affections on the reaction you should have to the truth in that song. Our hope would be that that happens. The question is, how? What are those truths? That in the midst of suffering, even really dark suffering, we would feel praise. We would experience a desire to show praise out of an overflow of joy. What gives us joy in the battle? Well, that is the message, not just of Philippians, but of all of Scripture. All of it. Because again, the Bible doesn't ignore suffering. The, the Bible addresses something like suffering on almost every page. And the grand conclusion, the grand peak, the grand sort of revelation of how God's going to go about fixing that is, of course, Jesus. And he says that about himself. He says in John 16, 33, he's about to go to the cross. He's in this upper room discourse with his disciples before he goes to be arrested and beaten and then eventually crucified. And he says to them, in the world, you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. <laughs> That's it. That's it. You're, you're going to have suffering. Realistic assessment. But take heart. And that's not just a, you know, painted on top of your suffering. It's not just this, this trick where you're going to kind of experience some sort of psychological, um, you know, I don't know, deception, comfort, some little, little amount of way to get through it, some sort of a trick to kind of work your way. No, no. He says, take heart because he bases it on, for I have overcome the world. So we need to understand what he means by that. If we want to understand joy, we want to understand why we take part, we have to understand how he has overcome the world. And if you see what he's saying, you can understand it through the whole of Scripture in the Old Testament, especially in one of the most famous parts of the Old Testament in Psalm 23, God has, says very clearly how he goes about that joy with us. You go to Psalm 23, it's only six verses. I've encouraged the people of Hope Church to memorize this psalm. I hope you have or will. It's really short. It doesn't take long, and it will bless you the rest of your days. 
But it says in Psalm 23, starting down in verse 4, it says, Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Because you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Do you see what he said? It's the same thing as what happened in John. He's saying, though you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you will. In this world, you will have trouble. I will fear no evil. Take heart. Because you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. I have overcome the world. (laughs) He says, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. He lays a feast before us with the snarling enemies around us. There's a very realistic understanding of the world today that in this world you will have trouble. Suffering is. But take heart. Feast. I've overcome the world. And then it finishes the psalm by saying, Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Surely, Lord, you will be with me all the days of my life until I die and go to be with you in your house forever. Do you understand that the scripture is telling us the way that Christians understand, the way that God allows suffering in our life is to see it as him with us in the suffering. Yeah, big overarching yes. Sin is the reason for all of this suffering. may not be your sin for your suffering, but the fall happened because Adam and Eve disobeying God created this place in which death and separation from God are the rule, not the exception. We've inherited it. We live in it. It's part of us. And that suffering now is accompanied by him. You go to another place in the Old Testament, you get to a guy named Job, who experienced kind of the headline suffering throughout the Old Testament, really throughout the Scripture. Apart from Christ, he was the one who I think we could say suffered the most. He was incredibly wealthy, incredibly well cared for. He had a beautiful, large family. And in one day, all of his wealth and his children died. And then on the next day, his health was taken so that from the top of his head to the bottom of his feet, he was covered in sore. And the story of that book, it's a long book if you ever sit down to read, Job, is him processing his his feelings towards God with God and with some friends. And in the midst of suffering, this is what he said. He said, man who is born of woman is few of days and full of trouble. He comes out like a flower and then he withers. He feels, I'm sorry, he flees like a shadow and continues not. Yeah. Job just watched how fleeting, how fast that even his great wealth disappeared. He watched how fleeting and how fast a life can be snuffed out as his children just in one day. But then he continues. I mean, the whole book obviously is fantastic. And this chapter 14 is lovely, lovely. But skipping down to verse 14, it says, If a man dies, shall he live again? In the midst of the suffering, in the midst of all this death, in the midst of everything he's going through, he's just going to express, in one moment, he's going to say what he wishes were true. 
If a man dies, shall he live again? All the days of my service I would wait until my renewal should come. You would call and I would answer you. You would long for the work of your hands. For then you would number my steps. You would keep watch over my sin. My transgression would be sealed up in a bag and you would cover over my iniquity. What's he saying? Oh my gosh, this life is awful. If only... If only I could still be connected to God. If only he looked at me and desired the work of his hands. If only he could somehow bring me through or back from death. If only he could cover over my transgressions. If only? Jesus. (laughs) That's what we're saying the gospel is. That's what we're saying our foundation for hope is. It's Jesus. That Jesus is God, looking at the things that he created and desiring them. So loved the world that he gave. So God, Jesus, being God, he's God come to be with us. But that's not enough. You still have to deal with the problems with us, which are, of course, our death and all of our sin. What do you do? He comes and he lives. He lives this perfect life in order to take our sin upon himself. Job's just imagining this, my transgression, that it could be sealed up in a bag. Your transgression was sealed up in the person of Christ. And he's nailed to a cross to hold him still long enough for the wrath of God, for all of your sin, to get poured out on the totally innocent Son of God. So that your iniquities can be covered up. Last two weeks we've been talking about the Lord's Supper, this picture of of the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world, that the blood of the Lamb is put over your doorpost so that the angel of death passes over your house. How do you get this? How do you receive it? How do you bank on this kind of salvation from the Lord? How do you know that He's with you in the valley of the shadow of death? You receive Him. You receive him by faith. That's what Paul was going and preaching to these people in Philippi. He was going to tell them that while you are separated from a holy God because of your sin, God has made a way for you to come back to him. And it's not by saying you're sorry and trying harder next time. You can come back into his presence by, through faith, receiving that forgiveness, being given the gift of righteousness, having your transgressions put up in a bag and taken away. It's not as though they didn't happen. They've been paid for by Christ. So he can get in your face and tell you very seriously that in this world you will have trouble. But take heart. He's overcome the world. That's the gospel. That's what he's come to speak to you. That's what he's come to bring, to give to you. And at Hope Church, our goal is for you to see and to understand it so that the joy that God has for all of his believers can overwhelm you, can can start to have some sort of presence down somewhere deep in your soul, but then start to grow and start to kind of expose itself more and more fully through your different life, in your different situations, to the point that your joy spills out. Not in like silly cuckoo kind of ways, but that you have a steady, true, lasting joy that endures 
in suffering because he's with you in the valley. Martin Lloyd-Jones, unbelievable pastor, evangelist, Welsh guy from the last century. He talked about one of the biggest problems with the church today is that nobody wants Christianity because nobody sees joy in Christianity. What would people see in your life that they would want because you have Jesus? And his point is that the enemy is always trying to get you to just walk away from the resources of joy that God's given you in the gospel. He wants you to just leave that money on the table, but it's yours. Won't you receive it? Here's my, my um, ask at the end of all this. Different groups, different asks. If you're somebody who's exploring Christianity, we would invite you to some of those classes that would be great. You can register for those online super easy. They won't be too painful. They're only like the longest one, I think, is only six weeks, something like that. Did that sound long? <laughs> I apologize. Okay. It's going to be really tough, but you can get through it. It's, it's six weeks, but you can do this. The series will probably be even shorter. So if you're not committed to that kind of a class, kind of a structure, no problem. Come back to just these Sunday mornings. Explore Philippians together. And let's just see, okay, is this something attractive? Is this something true? For the believers in the room, let me just commend to you. Philippians, so that preaching the gospel to yourself you become this glowing, this beautiful, this perfect picture. Not of perfection, but of how good a God can make a person feel. The kind of joy that's available to you in Christ. All right, let's pray. Lord God and Heavenly Father, I do ask that you'd help us to turn from weeping to joy. And yes, Lord, we're we're going to try and understand as well as we can all the nuance of this position. You are not a God who takes away suffering. You will eventually, Lord. You're not a God who says that we should not weep. Christ wept at the tomb of Lazarus, and you command us to weep with those that weep. But we do not mourn, it says in Thessalonians, we do not mourn as those who have no hope. Lord, you have overcome the world. We can take heart even in these tribulations, and I pray that we would be people who do. Not a people who act like they do, but a people who do. Not a people who have joy because of pride or because of deception, Lord, but a people who have joy because we know and we love you. We pray these things, Lord, for your glory and our good. In your son's name we pray. Amen.